We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast of St. Louis on the Air, brought to you by University College at Washington University. With undergraduate and graduate programs, part-time, evening, and online. University College at Washington University, offering world-class education within reach. Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. There are certain emotions and images that surface when we think about Southern cooking, from grits and gravy to fried chicken and corn pone. Most people would probably agree it's lip-smacking comfort food good. Our next guest agrees. Joe Johnston's been on this program before. You might remember him also as the guy who came up with the idea for McDonald's Happy Meal and talking about his books on the vigilante era in Missouri. Now he has a new book. It's titled Grits to Glory, How Southern Cooking Got So Good. It's a long way from McDonald's, Joe, and that Happy Meal, but uh, to singing the praises of grits. Before we start about the grits part of the story, I think a lot of people are intrigued by your Happy Meal connection. People like to... Uh Ask me about that. You know, that was in a different uh, time when uh, little kids didn't want to go to McDonald's. The only thing they had to attract them was uh, the, Mc, Mc, uh, the Hamburglar and, and Ronald McDonald. They actually had uh, uh, very little to entice kids. And yet the best customers are young families who have young kids. So we were, did a research study to find out how we could attract kids, and we packaged a meal. We printed on the packaging, you know, puzzles and games, and it's pretty much like a Happy Meal today, except it uh, it was called the Fun Meal, and it didn't have a toy in it, uh, and it didn't work to attract the kids until we put a toy in it. Isn't that strange? That I mean, was little the, things mean a lot. No <laughs> question about it. No question about it. Well, let's let's get to the book because sure. this is this is not a cookbook. There's right. not no recipes in the book, but an awful lot of information about uh, about Southern food. What, what what drew you to this? Well, I think it's uh, maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way, but uh, I've always been curious about why people eat the things they do mm-hmm. in different parts of the country. Uh, how come we eat stuff down here that folks up north don't eat, and how come folks up north and so forth? And Missouri is right in the middle of all that. Oh, sure. Uh, so as I began to study it, I uh, began to – I just thought the f- history of southern food was fascinating and uh, wanted to write about it. What is so fascinating about it that uh, that, that brought you to that? Well, the, honestly, the, the, the question of why people eat grits uh, – interested me to begin with. And, you know, corn um, was uh, brought from Central America uh, to the to North America and was eaten by uh, Native Americans long before the Europeans got here. In fact, uh, this is a little sidelight that's uh, not necessarily in the book, but, um, you know, Europeans took corn back and ate, some people ate so much of it that they uh, got sick from eating it because they didn't cook it correctly. But uh, Native Americans uh, and other cultures uh, have long known how to remove the husks from corn so it can be ground into cornmeal and made into all sorts of things, including grits. It is a good idea to remove the husk before eating corn. I exactly. think we all agree Well, it's, agree it's on not that. the husk. It's the skin on the kernels. Oh. Uh, that is the uh, – it's, it's actually a, a process called nixtamalization. Oh. And it, it has – but it, you soak the corn in a mixture of lye and water, uh, cook it, and then let it sit overnight. Then you rinse it off the next day, and there's a little 
thin skin that comes off the kernels. And if you don't do that, you can't properly digest the, uh, the dried corn. Hence the problem with the Europeans. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think most of us, Joe, when we think about uh, southern cooking, it's, I'm sure you get this all the time, southern fried chicken, that that's basically it. Sure. It's more than that. But what is it about southern fried chicken that makes it what it is? That's a good question. You mean yard birds, <laughs> uh, uh, chickens. Uh, they. It's related to the southern uh, diet as a whole. And if you th- to me, it, it goes back to the gr- growing season. Think about uh, if you live in uh, Tennessee, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Texas, Oklahoma, you have a, gl- a growing season, the Carolinas even, mm-hmm. you have a growing season mm-hmm. of maybe eight or nine months a year. And once you get farther north, that growing season gets shorter. So all of these people in the south uh, have traditionally eaten a menu, a very diverse menu of all kinds of fruits and vegetables. Mm. So when you have all those fruits and vegetables, you can eat anything else you want. And besides, these are hardworking people. They're outdoors eight or nine months of the year and doing agricultural work. So um, the the fried chicken uh, is related, can be breaded with cornmeal, can be, and people in the South, you know, didn't have flour. Mm-hmm. So um, fried chicken with flour as a breading is relatively new, meaning after the Civil War. How did history change Southern cooking? I mean, you you go into this in in some detail. It, it's different, uh, different before the Civil War. And, Absolutely. And, and the people who were cooking it were different than the people who were cooking it after the Civil War. That sort of thing. Yeah, give it. Sure. Give us some sense of how it evolved. Uh, more or less before the Civil War. Everybody was eating whatever they wanted. Things were doing well. Yeah. There was uh, prosperity uh, was fairly general, and Americans generally prospered uh, from the time the Europeans arrived until the Civil War. After the Civil War, uh, there were two Americas. Of course, I'm generalizing now, but in the South, there were few railroads, few roads compared to the North, few towns, few stores. So people were much more self-reliant, had uh, relied much more on uh, agriculture and uh, what they could grow and gather at at home. So um, after the Civil War, it was even worse. The the ports had been blockaded, so uh, silt had clogged New Orleans, for example. It had to be dredged out again. Those were closed. The docks were in, and warehouses were in disrepair, so nothing was imported to the South. They ate what they had. In the North, meanwhile, things were just chugging along. Mm-hmm. People had uh, streets and railroads and uh, a lot of trains and a lot of imports. So that's why there was – there also were a lot of immigrants coming into the North and into Missouri and West and very few people coming into the South for a long time. And yet so many of them were coming up from the South. Many of them yeah. came to this part of the country from New Orleans. Exactly. Yeah. But they would come up from New Orleans and uh, to St. Louis and west to Texas and yeah. so forth, it's, farther west. The, uh, one of the things that occurs to me about the way the uh, cooking has evolved is the fact that before the Civil War, most of the cooking was being done by slaves. Yeah. So that had to influence the, uh, the cuisine of the day somewhat, certainly. How did it? Yeah, imagine after the, South, uh, after the Civil War in the South, we have uh, a population of poor white people. 
basically all white people were poor Mm -hmm. after the Civil War. You had a population of three or four million slaves, and you had uh, Native Americans. And this is a great untold story, the influence of Native Americans on our diet. Uh, They were the originators of gather what you can, grow what you can, eat what's available, uh, a very diverse diet based on seasons and, and where and your your place. So after the Civil War, uh, those were the people who gave us Southern cooking, and they were all masters of uh, uh, doing with what doing the best they could with what they had. Mm-hmm. What about before the war, though? Was it was it different again? I mentioned that that it was the blacks in the country that were doing the cooking, not making the menus, I'm sure, but doing the cooking. Yeah, well, in the as you say, uh, slaves who were cooks and and house slaves also were learning how to fix some of the finest food anywhere, and including imports, but uh, became great cooks. Some of the same people and other members of their family were cooking uh, fat back, leftovers, uh, soup bones, um, little bits of produce mixed with what produce they could grow. So there were after the war when this uh, they were some of them, of course, were still working in the kitchens sure. and so forth. But they were very fine cooks, and there was. Um, you know, I don't pretend to be an expert on race relations, but there is anyone who no, has lived in the South experiences a kind of neighborliness and sharing that doesn't exist in other parts mm-hmm. of the country in the same way. You you make a big point over the fact that hospitality is a, is a probably one of the most important ingredients in in, in the in the cooking, if you will. Yeah, you know, in the South, uh, things move slower. Uh, there's time to tell stories. Uh, traditionally, uh, young people have learned to cook by watching things cooked and listening to the stories. Young people learn to hunt and fish and clean what they hunt and fish um, or at an earlier age. So all that is part of uh, Southern hospitality. Of course, I, I don't think that's exclusively Southern by any means, but it is uh, a value that it's traditional and uh, continues in the South. It might have been unfair of me uh, earlier to just talk about Southern fried chicken as if that's all there is to Southern cooking. (laughs) Obviously, it's a lot more complicated than that. But generally, how would you characterize Southern fried uh, or Southern uh, cooking cooking. if if you had to describe what it is and what makes it different from uh, elsewhere, other areas? I'd say it's based on pork. Mm -hmm. Uh, Pigs do very well in the South. Uh, you know, out west, you can have a, a, a herd of cattle out there, and you can see them uh, 20 miles away and go get them if you need to. Mm-hmm. In the south, not so much because we have uh, hills and valleys and coves and uh, hollows. Uh, so uh, cattle uh, need a lot more range and a lot more grass. Hogs can be kept in uh, the tiniest little places. In the front they, yard. They can, yeah, in the front <laughs> yard. They can find their own food if they have to. They eat roots. Um, you can turn a group of hogs loose and uh, let them clear a lot for you to put it in a garden. They'll eat everything in there and leave the dirt. So uh, hogs are uh, pork is traditional to the South. Uh, hence, uh, everything you can make from pork, which, uh, you know, pork fat, bacon, 
Uh, pork fat is the fat that's used in a lot of cooking, whereas um, a northern, an, an immigrant, a, a European immigrant might tend to uh, cook with butter and other kinds of grease. Southern cooks use pork grease traditionally. Goes it, pretty much in everything. Um, it doesn't sound like the healthiest diet. In it the is. World. It is not. Except that uh, Southern people work hard. Uh, we work outdoors a lot, and um, as I said, Southerners have this diverse plant-based uh, diet that includes natural plants as well as agricultural plants. Is it something that is still with us? Is Southern cooking still very much a, a part of the South? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> we can go to Chicago and find southern mm. ribs and uh, southern fried chicken and all those sorts of things. Um, I think that um, in my own experience with my family coming from Missouri, uh, St. Louis is such an example of the blending of American cuisine because we have this tremendous European influence in, in the St. Louis area and in Missouri in general. <clears throat> and then you have this Southern influence uh, because of all the Southerners who came here before the war. No other state uh, has quite the uh, history that Missouri does as a divided state during the Civil War. What would you point to in Missouri that uh, most accurately reflects Southern cooking? Well, that's hard to say. Um, in my own family, we, for example, we have a fried corn recipe that originated in North Carolina. Fried corn? Fried corn. Uh, you just fry it up in a skillet with a little bit of grease, some peppers, some onions, uh, and it's uh, a whole new taste with corn. I'll tell you another thing that's uh, – this is a good story to me to show how uh, these traditions – tradition continue in Missouri, but this, although the story I'm getting ready to tell is an Arkansas story, my wife uh, has Cherokee ancestry. Mm -hmm. When she was a little girl, one of the women came out of the cellar with a brown ball, slightly smaller than a baseball, and my wife hadn't, as a little girl, had no idea what it was, and it was, um, uh, that day they served a Cherokee soup called Kanuchi, which uh, is very common uh, among Cherokee people and Creek and some others. And it's basically uh, smashed up acorns, mm. which are mushed together with their own oil to make these balls and stored that way. Then you, uh, the cook takes out a ball, puts it in boiling water, and makes a soup out of it. So there are a number of these traditions that are uh, southern in origin and continue in Missouri today. Mm. I want to get uh, members of our audience into this conversation, uh, Joe, because oh uh, I'm sure a lot of folks are, are licking their lips right now around <laughs> lunchtime thinking about what might taste really good. 382-8255 is our number. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you'd prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. And Tom from Afton, Missouri, is with us. He has a question uh, or a comment. Uh, Tom, come on in. What's your, what's your question or comment? Thanks, Don. Uh, I grew up here in St. Louis. I live in Chicago and Minneapolis. And when I was in Minnesota, I really got to ask myself, what makes the Midwest the Midwest and, and different from the South? Uh, what do we have more of in Minnesota than where I grew up in St. Louis? And the big difference was the absence of Scotch-Irish Protestants, uh, which are, the I understand, the dominant uh, cultural group in the South. What are the contributions to today's Southern cooking of uh, Scotch-Irish Protestants? 
That's an interesting question. And I think the obvious answer is dinner on the ground. You know what I'm talking about? No. Dinner at the church after after services. Uh, it's uh, something that goes on all everywhere, but is uh, part of it's, – it's very uh, prominent in the South where uh, we have potluck dinners after church. So this is not a casual affair. This is not something that you run by KFC and pick up a bucket of chicken and or the uh, potato salad from the uh, Schnucks department, uh, Schnucks grocery, grocery store. Uh, but you bring your finest. People bring homemade, uh, home canned pickles and tomatoes and uh, everything else to the potlucks at the at the church. And I think that's a great uh, southern um, uh, stronghold for uh, great cooking. Uh, the other thing I would say about that, by the way, is that, um, you know, I've spent some time, Don, in uh, Nashville in the music business, and uh, in my opinion, the best songwriters uh, of uh, in Nashville came from a Southern Baptist tradition, mm-hmm. and this is because Southern Baptist preachers are taught to tell stories. Uh, uh, you can tell a Baptist preacher any joke or any story, and he can make a sermon out of it. Uh-huh. So uh, that's why we have so many great uh, songwriters from that tradition. And as uh, I have a friend who told me recently, uh, I know why Southerners uh, eat so many grits. It's because uh, they come free. It's like God's blessings. They, you don't have to order them. They just come with everything. Another interesting part of uh, Tom's question about the Scotch-Irish influence, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but was my impression that many of the people who came from that part of the world settled in the hills and in the south? I mean, no disrespect intended, but that's what we'd call hillbillies. They were mostly from uh, these parts of the world. So I would think they would have some influence on on the food. Yeah, and we there's actually some uh, discussion of that in the book about how recipes changed, European Mm -hmm. recipes changed when people came here. For example, um, the Irish people would top a shepherd's pie with potatoes. When they came here, uh, they would uh, top them with uh, cornmeal, some sort of cornmeal, cornbread. So uh, the, let's see, there was another one. There was uh, some of the sausages uh, found different ingredients. They would have cornmeal in the sausages instead of some of the fillers, oatmeal, oats, and so forth that were used in Europe. You work with what you've got. I mean, you that's work, exactly. What, what you had exactly. to do. Exactly. That's the whole idea. Speaking of the cultural influence on food, uh, Mike is joining us from Ferguson. I think he wants to get into that. Go ahead, Mike. Hello, Joe. Hello, Don. Good talking to you, Joe. Good morning, Mike. Hey, uh, I was telling the producer earlier that you and my wife and I had supper last night, and we went to Das Bivo in South St. Louis. Nothing Southern about it, was there? Well, uh, I'd never had schnitzel. I've never been to a German restaurant. And when they brought that out, I'm looking at it and just thinking, well, this is a chicken fried steak. You know, this is what they called it when I was a kid, and we would have these things. And I think it's just another example of cultural influence on different foods that you write or write about in your book. Exactly, exactly. I was uh, we were talking last night, Don, about uh, a cousin of mine who has a restaurant in Tulsa, a new place, and he makes 
schnitzel the traditional way with pork, but he also makes it with chicken mm-hmm. and with eggplant. So this is uh, an example of how these traditions blend, you know. But yeah, chicken fried steak is pretty much the same as uh, schnitzel, only uh, beef versus pork. Yeah. You would have to think with the the great waves of migration from the south uh, during the early part of the, the last century and the great waves of immigrants that came in from Europe in the middle of the 19th century would have to have a tremendous uh, influence over the things that we ate. That and what was available where you happened to be. Exactly. Using what you have. You know, um, uh, a lot of people call white potatoes Irish potatoes, mm-hmm. you know, because there are other kinds. And in uh, South America, you know, there are hundreds of varieties of potatoes. So a potato is not just a potato. I also like the story that's in the book about um, some people who lived around Branson, and um, they made white gravy, which is, uh, it's uh, made with flour and uh, grease, and then when... um, the uh, mother would make brown gravy. They called it Yankee gravy oh. because it was made with beef. So they didn't like that because it was Yankee gravy. White gravy and biscuits. Uh, you, yeah. you, that, that's kind of a staple, is it yeah, not, in, exactly. the, in, in southern cooking? I'll tell you a, another interesting aspect of this, though. Flour is not traditionally southern. Um, and I've, I've long known this story that um, – a lot of most of the people I've heard everybody, but I don't think everybody, but people in Jefferson County had never tasted white bread or did not have flour until after the Civil War. There were no mills, you know, and mm-hmm. it was just it just wasn't available. All the flour went to these northern mills and it was distributed in the north. Um, Lodge, what was his name? Jo- Joseph Lodge, who founded the Lodge Cast Iron Cookware Company. Mm-hmm. Um, had never tasted cornbread until he came to Missouri after the Civil War. So there was this divide. There's cornmeal there. There's white flour up there. Yeah. Well, you talk about uh, staples. The cast iron pot in the frying pan is probably one of the most important uh, uh, pieces in the kitchen, in the southern kitchen. Yeah, the more I uh, – every once in a while one of these reports comes out about uh, the dangers of Teflon and, and so mm-hmm. forth, which uh, – you know, I don't know about that, but I do know that uh, cooking in cast iron is good for you. Uh, you. We do get a little bit of iron from it, but uh, it's the original nonstick uh, cooking surface. And if you want to put a crust on something, that's yeah. the that's the pot or the implement to use, isn't yeah. it? Let's take another call. Uh, Greg will join us from St. Louis. Uh, Greg, thanks for being with us. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I was just trying to weigh in on the uh, conversation you all are having, and what Southern food means to me uh, means that uh, in the, when I was a kid, my grandmother, every Sunday, and it just brought the family together, and everybody had a task. Like, I had a task of splitting the peas or, or something like that, but then it would turn out to be like a family ordeal of making fried chicken, uh, collard greens, black-eyed peas with uh, macaroni and cheese and fried green tomatoes and it was just something that I I've learned to cook as a little kid so now I incorporate that into my family you know so it was just something that I was just trying to weigh in on the conversation I love that you are making me hungry <laughs> you know there is nothing like 
sitting on the porch with Grandma shelling those peas or popping the ends off the green beans and listening to her talk. That's how we heard those stories, right? Yeah, a lot of stories. A lot of stories. (laughs) Thanks, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Thank you for calling. You have a a picture in the book of a woman standing with her husband of some many years, and she's wearing an apron. And I think you you say as part of it, she never took that apron off. <laughs> she had it going all the time. No, except for church. I think she took yeah, it off for church. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course, yeah. uh, of course she would have. But you know, this, this uh, goes back to what you were uh, mentioning on hospitality. Mm-hmm. You know, that so many of these dishes have a story attached to them. Or, you know, it might be a fish that mm-hmm. has a fish story or a, uh, a hog that has a, a hog, uh, you know, a slice of pork that mm-hmm. has a hog story attached to it. And so those stories get told as the dishes are prepared and uh, a year, years go by, people retell those stories. And that's why we have friends over and they hear those stories. Sure. You also point out in the book that uh, for a long time, and maybe that's still the case, that every part of the animal was consumed. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of parts I wouldn't want to consume, Joe, let me tell you that, but uh, nothing goes to waste. That's right. You know, I can remember uh, as a boy, I can remember my mother eating uh, pickled pig's feet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can still buy them in the store. Yeah. Uh, my mother was a, a refined lady, a school teacher, uh, well-educated, and she loved pickled pig's feet. So that's uh, an example of using every part of the animal. A lot of meats were pickled, actually, but... Um, yeah, to preserve them. Yeah, to yeah, preserve them, sure. exactly. Uh, the feet of both pigs and calves were um, could be cooked, and which releases the gelatin from them. So then that gelatin was used to make jello, the original jello, could be had with any kind of flavors. And it was also sometimes just put in soups. Uh, people ate, uh, you know, turtle was a very yeah. popular meat for a long time. And mock turtle. And mock turtle. Mm-hmm. So uh, turtle was so popular that recipes emerged to make mock turtle, this and that and the other thing, which from beef or pork or whatever you had. We did a a program uh, a few days ago on on, uh, barbecuing, Uh and they talked about snoots being uh, among the most (laughs) – you're making a funny face, Joe. Tell me about that. Where does does that come into the – Big snoots? uh, Yeah, big snoots. Yeah. Yeah. I have uh, never had that particular dish, but but yeah, it's part of the whole. You know, uh, hog jowls mm-hmm. are very tasty. I've had those. The uh, then the other thing that uh, was very common is every cook uh, at one time had to m- know how to make uh, use the meat in a head. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the head of a pig, the head of yeah. a calf has a lot of meat on it. To get to the brains, uh, required a hatchet, oh and they God. would take those brains out and cook them with eggs and uh, onions. Well, good eating, good eating, but I don't know about the preparation. I think I'd come to dinner late. But they say they say that squirrel brains make you smart. Well, let's uh, let's uh, take a note here from Hillary. I mentioned barbecue a moment ago, and she is curious about barbecue in the South as part of Southern cuisine. Well, it's hot in the South. And if you think back to our ancestors, uh, where they cooked, they cooked in a, on an open hearth in the house. Well, that was hot. Uh, so then when they got stoves, the stoves also gave off a lot of heat. So in the South, uh, it wasn't such a big problem in the North as it was in the South. Mm-hmm. So it 
became more common to cook outdoors in the South than it did in the North. So that's why barbecue really originated and uh, became so popular here. The true Southern barbecue is pork, not, yeah, not cheap. Exactly. I'm going to take a quick call from Rick calling from Brentwood here because he's going to get in, back into the uh, cast iron skillet thing. Go ahead, Rick, but make it quick, please. Hello, gentlemen. My name is Rick. I own an auction and real estate company in Brentwood and uh, for 10 years, and I've run across numerous cast iron skillets that nobody wants to buy because they're nasty and crusty, and they just, you know, you'd wanna, you wouldn't want to touch them. I've developed a <laughs> technique, and I'll make it real quick. You take a five-gallon bucket, and you fill it with the hottest water you can get out of your water heater, and you throw in two of those uh, cans of the old-fashioned lye that you used to be able to get out of the hardware store. It's kind of hard to find anymore, but put those there and let it soak. Let it soak overnight. All that nasty will just flake right off with a wire brush and a putty knife make sure that you wear industrial gloves and then put it in your sink and scrub the heck out of it with soap and water clean it up and if you want to you can run it through the dishwasher it'll get super brown you take it out scrub it again wash it and then you see it on your stove or the top of your range or in your oven with olive oil and you've got a new absolutely wonderful old cast iron piece of Equipment. Thank you. Thank you. We'll let it go at that because time's getting away. You're going to be in Jefferson County tomorrow very quickly and and today. Where and when? This afternoon, I'm speaking at the High Ridge, Jefferson County Library in High Ridge at 3. And uh, actually, it's the uh, bicentennial of Jefferson County. And I'm speaking as part of that about my book, The Mac Marsden Murder Mystery. Uh, That's at High Ridge at 3 today, tomorrow at Barnhart. Wait a minute, I've got it back. I'm sorry, Arnold Library at 10 and Barnhart Library at 3 tomorrow. Okay, well, Joe Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Congratulations on the book from uh, Grits to Glory is the name of it. We're rushed right now, but thank you so much for being with us. St. Louis on the Air is produced by Alex Hoyer and Evie Hemphill with production assistance from Aaron Dorr, Charlie McDonald, and Caitlin Lally. The executive producer is Mary Edwards. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Don Marsh.